0: Well, I opened the service with the question, do you believe that God likes you? The human problem is such that moral failures cause us to have a deep sense of shame and unworthiness. And that causes us to flee from God and to think that there's no way that he would ever like us. We carry that shame with us throughout our lives. And if you, if you think of Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son, once that younger son has squandered his father's property and has done all sorts of immoral things, he comes to the end of himself and he decides what his speech is going to be. He says, I'm going to go back to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. I'm not worthy to be called your son. His moral failure gets him to the place where he feels unworthy. And to be honest, he is unworthy. He has done something horrible. But what we find in the gospel that is so radical and it breaks our minds because the rest of the world doesn't work this way is that God accepts him. God accepts you. God loves you and delights in you. So when he gets to his father and he starts into his speech, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. His father cuts him off. He doesn't even get to say, "Um, just make me one of your servants. And And they're already working on preparing a feast. He's got a ring on his finger, a robe on him, sandals on his feet. He's been welcomed back in immediately. You see that moral failure that we all have, that we all experience—that sense of unworthiness has to be dealt and one dealt with in one of two ways. One is just absolute humility to say to God, "I am not worthy." The other is the self-righteousness where we start to compare. And we look at somebody else and we think, well, I'm better than that one. And we try and build up self-esteem and a sense of worth by looking at others who are doing something different. And that, that is, it's in many ways worse. It's worse than the, the sin. And the older son in that parable does that very thing. He won't even go in and celebrate. He won't recognize that his younger brother has come back. And the father has to go out and try and entreat him to come in. And in both cases, the younger son and the older son have proven that they are not worthy. But what does God think? What, what motivated Christmas? You know, the most famous verse in the entire Bible that most of you probably have memorized is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The reason Christmas happened is because of God's love for an unworthy world. It's because it was while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was a God who loves his enemies. To love the world means to love people who are not worthy. There is no one who is worthy. And there's shame over everyone. And God breaks into that and does something so amazing. That here is the good news. Yes, you are not worthy, but you are cherished. As we think about the wonder of God's kingdom in Christmas, the wonder is this, that he delights in you. That he loves you, that he accepts you, and he saves you. Now, the text that I was looking at today is the Isaiah one, and it's taken straight out of the, the lectionary prescribed for this Sunday of Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas, and. I, I read it a hundred times all week, trying to figure out why are those the breakpoints in this text. You know, Isaiah is a long book. It's a major prophet writing, and it goes 66 chapters. And the verses that were prescribed for this Sunday start in chapter 61, but not in verse 1, where it's about the year of the Lord's favor being upon his servant. It starts a little bit later in verse 10. And then it goes to the next chapter to verse five. And I realized that there's a reason for that. It is bookended by the word delight and rejoicing. That we, the the first person speaking there says, I rejoice in God. And then it ends with it saying, God rejoices in you. Those are the bookends of that section where we've got a God rejoicing in his people, delighting in them. And so I go back to the question, do you think God likes you? Even if you don't feel it, believe it's true because of God's word. He delights in his people. He loves you. That's why he came. Now, Isaiah as I said, it's a big book and it's got three major sections because Isaiah was writing to a specific people in a specific situation. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with people who are rebelling against God and a God who is pulling a remnant of people out of those rebels, the remnant that wants God to be their God. The second section, which starts in chapter 40, is about God Comforting his people who are now in exile because of their rebellion. They are devastated. They think God has abandoned them because of this judgment. And he says, No, I'm with you. And he says, Comfort my people, encourage them. And so there's this word to these people who are under judgment saying, I have not abandoned you, I love you, and I'm with you. And then the third section, which is perfect for Christmas, is about things to come after that. The people have come back from their exile, but it's not what they expected. It's not as glorious as they thought. It's not all things have been put right. And so God uses Isaiah to speak a future word. There is a day coming that is glorious and better and God's righteousness will be yours and there will be worship and praise. And all of this is looking ahead both to Christ's first coming and to his second coming. And so we see things that God does in this text that, make us want to rejoice in him. So that's the first in is that I, I says, I rejoice in God. So if you want to turn to Isaiah, that's Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to pull a couple things out of here and go to this, you know, for the last day of the year, go to this basic truth about the good news that God loves you and delights in you. And he likes you. He actually likes you. Look at what he does. So, Isaiah 61.10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. That language is very similar to the Magnificat that Mary actually prays after the annunciation that she's going to bear this this Son of God. She rejoices. Her soul delights in God. God our Savior. In verse 10, it says, um, if you keep, keep reading, it says, For... You know, this is why. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for, because, because, for, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then it goes on and talks about a bridegroom decking himself out. I was at a wedding yesterday and we saw lots of decked out (laughs) and it was glorious and beautiful. And God clothes you. He covers you. You see, if you go all the way back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 3, when the first humans rebel from God, they are hiding from him when he goes into the garden looking for them. And God says, why are you hiding? And you know what the answer is? (laughs) Because I'm naked. And he says, who told you you were naked? That question is so insightful. Who told you you were naked? You didn't know you were naked until you rebelled. And now all of a sudden, the shame, the unworthiness, all that is right in front of you. You are aware of it. You feel that you now have a personal knowledge of evil. It is in you. You have rebelled. You know good. And now you know evil. You are naked. And if you jump all the way to the other side of the book, go from Genesis all the way to Revelation, go to Revelation 3, we see the resurrected Christ speaking in a vision through the Apostle John to the church specific churches around Asia Minor. And to the church in Laodicea, he says this, you say I am rich. Now remember, the unworthy thing that we have to deal with is either to humble ourselves and come and and say, God, I'm not worthy. Save me, help me, clothe me. Or to try and build up some sense of worthiness and self-righteousness based on comparison. And that's what was happening in this church. And it says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness not be seen. So you're naked and I will clothe you. Buy this refined gold from me, these white garments. I will give those to you. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 61, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's such an interesting reversal that Jesus, the righteous one, would actually be naked on that cross for us. He bears our shame and our nakedness and he dies on a cross so that we can get his righteousness. Imputed. We don't earn it. We're not worthy. He gives it to us. When Christ does that, God looks at Christ instead of you and says, you are righteous because of what Christ has done. You therefore are clothed with a white garment. You are given God's purity. He has declared this. He has saved you. So you rejoice in God. It's something he does. You can't earn it. You are not worthy, but he delights in you and loves you. And so he comes as a savior and does this. We think sometimes the New Testament is about God saving and the Old Testament is about judgment. But here we are in the Old Testament and we see that's not the case. The whole thing is about God who loves you. It's all about grace. And here he is, I have clothed you with salvation and righteousness. He is speaking of what he has has done. He clothes you and covers your shame with his righteousness. He does it, you don't. The second thing is in verse 11, it says this. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The other thing he does is he gives you new life. He causes your heart to be regenerated and new so that you praise him, so that you long for his righteous ways. He changes your desires. He inclines you toward him, whereas before you were against him or inward, now you're outward oriented. God gives new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Or as, as in John 3, it says, being born again. You must be born again. So God gives life to what was dead. And that's a regeneration in here, inside of you, that then begins to work its way out so that all the nations will see this righteousness played out in your actual life. This is another thing God does. He gives you a new heart, new desires, and now there's fruitfulness happening. And then in the next chapter, 62, verse 2, it says, The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. I don't know how many of you are pet owners. We have a dog. We've had a dog for 10 years, and that, that dog has like 40 names, it seems every month our children give the dog another name. His name is technically Leo, but he's got all these other names. Some are silly, some are serious, whatever. They're, but because our children love that dog, and I, I do too, <laughs> most days, most days, the dog gets lots of names and, and it's, it comes out of the affection for him that these names pop up. God does the same thing because he delights in you. He gives you a new name. Whereas before you were unworthy and you were pitiable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Now he says, you belong to me. You are a Christian was the first time it was used in Antioch. Speaking of this new church, a Christian. The word Christ is in there. Christian is a little Christ. The name of the Son of God is now your name. You are a Christian. You belong to God. There are tons of names for this new church and these new believers. And that is because of God's affection for you. It is because he has saved you. I think sometimes of um, uh, this guy that I met that had come out of a really broken um, background in drugs and whatever. And he had tattooed on his forearm, the in Hebrew, the word Yahweh. And, and you know, it was I, I asked him about it and he said, I belong to the Lord. So he had God's name literally written on him. And I thought about that though, like if you have a prized possession you don't want to lose, you write your name on it, right? Soccer ball or whatever, something that could be lost. You write You know, this belongs to you. You write your name on it. And although we don't need to tattoo it on the outside, although you can if you want, God has spoken a new name over you that you belong to him because he delights in you, because of how precious and important you are to him. Again, this is chipping away at that sense of shame for our moral failures and our sense of unworthiness. God is speaking truth over you. I love you. You belong to me. You are a Christian. Christ's name is... Is now your name? If um, I, I, I really love the works of Brennan Manning, um, the late Brennan Manning. He he was in the recovery ministry for a long time. Had been an uh, an um, alcoholic addicted person, and wrote some amazing things about God's grace and thinking about Jesus, the friend of sinners, and how He called a tax collector named Levi, Levi to come and be one of his disciples. Brendan Manning writes this, and I just think it's so helpful to us. Because everything in us is about earning. Everything in us is about performance. From the time you were able to understand words, if you do good, you are rewarded. If you do bad, you are punished. The minute you get a job, if you do well, there's a performance bonus. If you do not, you get fired. And it's, everything is based on performance. And so we're preconditioned to think God works that way with us, and He doesn't. And so Brennan Manning writes this He says, Here is the revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in the, 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 the poor choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives for street people, for superstars, for farmers, for hookers, for addicts, for IRS agents, for AIDS victims, and even for used car salesmen. My apologies if you sell cars. (laughs) This passage should be read, reread, memorized by every Christian, every Christian generation. And he's talking about where it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, The Son of Man came for sinners, not the righteous. It's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. That should be memorized. And he says every Christian generation has tried to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. That is good news. It seems fitting to us, to me at least to come to the last day of the year and to just be as simple and clear as possible. You are loved and God delights in you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this good news. Thank you for your delight in us, for your love for us. We know we're not worthy, but Lord, you make us worthy. Help us to live into that. Give us a deep longing and a desire to be righteous in our deeds, to live morally out of gratitude for you. And may others see that and come and worship you as well. For I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.